In this episode, I'm joined by John Winhall. John is an author, teacher, and psychotherapist with more than 40 years of experience working with addiction and trauma. She is an adjunct lecturer at the University of Toronto and the director of Focusing on Borden, a psychotherapy and training center. John presents internationally on trauma and addiction, and her most recent book, Treating Trauma and Addiction with the Felt Sense Polyvagal Model, has attracted praise from the likes of Gabor Mate, Stephen Porges, and Mark Lewis. In this conversation, we discuss why it's vital that we bring the body more and more into psychotherapy, particularly when working with trauma and addiction, how polyvagal theory can help us understand the mechanism underlying addictive behavior, the importance of looking at addictions as adaptive in their historical context, how addictions can be thought of as state regulation strategies for the autonomic nervous system, and more. You can learn more about the great work Jan is doing by going to www.janwinhall.com and you can find her course with the Polyvagal Institute by going to bit.ly forward slash jw hyphen course. Jan, welcome to the show. Um, for anybody that isn't aware of you and your work, could you maybe tell us a bit about your background and how you first got into working with addiction? Yeah, it's wonderful to be with you, Niall. I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, well, the journey began many, 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 many years ago uh, when I was fresh out of graduate school. Um, it was over 40 years ago now. And uh, it really came about because of the, the job that I got. So I was began working at a hospital outside of Toronto, which, you know, you know now being in Toronto, um, in the greater Toronto area, um, so outside of the main city, but in, a, in an area that was really uh, highly challenged for people that were often people that were just coming to the country and had a lot of trauma and a lot of needs. And so I ended up being asked to run a group for young women who were incest survivors. And as you can imagine, I mean, it was just really pretty overwhelming. But that's how I started because um, all of the women in this group were uh, describing behaviors that they were engaged in, which were self-harming behaviors but they also helped them in some ways that they didn't understand. And most of those behaviors became addictions because they helped them in some way that none of us understood at the time, but it was really that what, that began my journey. And over the years, I really uh, tried to figure that out. Like how could behaviors like cutting the body or, um, uh, you know, more like the substance abuse was, was easier to understand in terms of how it would just knock you out, right? But cutting your body, how did that help you? Or eating huge amounts of food, how did that help you? Or eating bars of soap. So it was really that which started the journey of trying to understand what was going on for these young women so that I could be of, of service to them. That's really interesting, Jan. Now, I've heard in another interview um, something along the lines of you're saying that um, part of your mission, I suppose, is to bring the body more and more into psychotherapy. I just want to ask, you know, what, why is this so important? 
Yes, and this takes us back to those early days because what I began to realize through watching these women uh, and their bodies, their bodily responses, and listening to what they were telling me uh, in spite of what I was being told by the psychiatric system, you know, that they were masochistic or they had borderline personality. I just ignored all that and I just listened. And what we learned, uh, the beginnings of anyway, that went on uh, in, in time for me, was that these shifts that, that happened in these behaviors, uh, even something like, um, well, for example, with cutting the body, right? Um, they felt better because they were numbing through really endogenous opioids that were released uh, in the body through because of the injury of cutting. And so I realized that all of this that's going on for us is going on for us in our bodies. Trauma lives in our bodies. And trauma happened to these young women in their bodies. Their bodies were violated. And... So those were the early days, the feminist um, environment really helped me to also understand wonderful feminist therapists like Sandra Butler and uh, Judith Herman began, Judith Herman began to write about how these behaviors activated the autonomic nervous system. Yeah, she called it numbing and flooding. So the numbing is what we now identify through polyvagal theory as the dorsal branch of the vagus nerve. We didn't know that back then, but we knew that there was this numbing dissociative quality and flooding was the sympathetic branch of flight fight. And so over time, what I put together was that the body was using these behaviors to shift states back and forth in the nervous system from the sympathetic flooding response of anxiety or rage, you know, you drink a bottle of wine and it shuts you down into the dorsal branch of the vagus. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. Okay. So I think before we go any further, we should probably kind of, I suppose, define our terms here. And yeah. I, I'd love to ask, you know, what, what is your current working definition of addiction or for, and you know, just could you provide maybe your understanding of addiction for everybody listening? I think that's really yeah. important just to lay out. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. And often people don't ask that. But my my definition, I suppose, is very, very similar to Gabor Mate's. It's the it's a very simple definition. It's something that um, addiction is something that um, helps you in the short term, brings relief. It hurts you in the long term because it's ultimately self-harming to the body and you can't stop doing it. Okay. It's as simple as that really. And it get it cuts when you have that kind of simple definition, it cuts through any kind of um, concern about whether, for example, with sex addiction, it is an addiction, it's not an addiction. There's no value placed on it. It's just really, is it bothering you? Is it hurting you? And can you stop if you want to? Mm. 100%. Um, so we're not going to have time in this interview to get into sort of the, into, into everything in polyvagal theory. There's so much there, but if people want kind of like an introduction into that, um, I would say there's, in your book, is probably a good, good place to get, get that information. And also we've done lectures with like Deb Dana 
providing intro, the introductions and in, into into the concepts. So those are two places where if you're if you're just starting to learn about polyvagal theory, I would go there first before maybe getting fully into this interview. But that said, um, something that I find particularly interesting about your your work, Jan, is um, that in addiction, it seems to be a blend of dorsal vagal and dorsal vagal um, immobilization, like a shutdown yes. and sympathetic mobilization. Could you maybe yes. tell us a bit, a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, addictions serve to really help us when we're living in that trauma feedback loop of sympathetic flooding and then dorsal numbing. And so Steve Porges calls addictions state regulation strategies. I call them propellers. They propel you from an anxious place or an angry place into a relief of shutting down and numbing in the dorsal branch of the vagus in dissociation or vice versa. If you're living in that dorsal shutdown state, certain addictions that activate, you know, adrenaline and that pumping kind of uh, mobilizing energy shift you back from a deadened, horrible feeling in the body to aliveness, right? Through risk-taking behaviors and that kind of thing. So through a polyvagal lens, we see addictions in the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, as ways of regulate, attempting, attempting, to regulate your, your mood and your physiology through shifting back and forth between sympathetic flight-fight and dorsal parasympathetic immobilizing. That's, that's so interesting. And something else I find in that paper you wrote with Stephen Borges, I find quite interesting as well, is that whenever social interactions are missing from our lives, um, humans, because I suppose we have these meaning making brains, um, we, we, um, seek out, um, our social, social interactions are our way of sort of regulating our autonomic nervous system. And whenever social interactions are missing, we try and find other ways to achieve that, achieve that autonomic regulation through things like substances and different behaviors as well. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that there, Jan? So I think you're, you're getting at the Steve's, the, another piece to the polyvagal theory is Steve's um, uh, discussion around social engagement, right? That when we're in a grounded place in our bodies, in a place that uh, is, is called the ventral branch of that vagus nerve, where we feel safe enough to be really present, like, like we are right now, I think. I hope you are too, Niall. <laughs> We're having fun and, you know, and, and we feel safe enough that we're really engaging with each other. And we, we met for dinner, so we know each other a little bit as well. So it makes socially engaging easier to do, right, than just to be online. In addiction, though, what happens is that the body is, is missing out on safe enough experiences that we're, be, we're able to access that ventral branch of the vagus to feel engaged with each other. And it's not that it never happens, but it's, it's really compromised. Connecting and feeling safe and feeling whole 
is a place where addictions aren't needed because we're not swinging back and forth between flight, fight, freeze, and then shut down, right? We're in this different place where we feel safe enough to be really present and to give cues to each other of feeling connected and warm and safe enough. But when we are using addictions to try to regulate the body and mood, those, this presence isn't available to us as much. And so we end up seeking out a lot of behavioral addictions in particular uh, to, to really use them as what we call kind of external regulators. So instead of connecting with you and having dinner and feeling less uh, sad or lonely or whatever that somebody might feel, uh, we go to the bottle. The bottle is the substitute. The bottle is there. It's predictable to a larger extent than connecting with other people. And so it becomes the primary attachment. And that's really sad. So our role as healers is to really coax people back into connection with each other, with us, to create enough safety together that people will start to come towards us with with connection and social engagement and with each other. And that's why I work in groups so much of the time. It's so interesting. Um, you know, it's such a simple thing, um, but it's a theme that keeps coming back in these interviews is that the most important, most important variable in human psychological health is how connected you are to other people. Yes. And whenever that, whenever that's missing, it just, we get into all kinds of problems, you know, Exactly. Yeah. Um, so and the also, there's another piece here, too, which is really important in addiction, that when we lose that grounded place where we can really connect with the prefrontal cortex, right, the part of the brain that is in line and connected and clear thinking and can uh, execute goals, that becomes compromised. And so we end up in these in these states where we lose that sense of knowing what the right thing to do is and living by our values. And so one of the the most heartbreaking things really about living with addiction over time, especially over long periods of time, is that people end up doing things that they would never normally do if they were in a more grounded and safe state and socially engaged with each other that violate their own value system. And that then becomes a terrible burden, which I think often is a big motivator in not attempting to move out of the addictive states because the pain of what you've done, how you've hurt, not just yourself, but the people around you is, is too great to bear. So it takes a tremendous amount of courage to move out of addictive neural pathways. 100%. So we spoke about this before, but I think it's important to cover here as well. Um, so if in my, in my own case, you know, if I'm ever feeling in that sympathetic state where I'm feeling like sort of that threat response is coming on and I'm feeling like I'm just not feeling safe for whatever reason, yeah. um, my default is to rush into some kind of busyness or like a very active behavior. And it's, it's not like, 
I, when I, when I'm like, when I'm doing that, I don't feel like I'm, I'm grounded. I don't, I feel like I'm just, um, it feels almost automatic. Um, and even though I'm cognitively aware of these different states, you know, I'm cognitively aware that I'm in a sympathetic state, it doesn't really help, you know? So my question to you is like, you know, if someone hmm. experiences that, um, or anything like it, you know, they, they know they're in these states and they, they feel, they feel their nervous system shifting into these kind of states. What can they actually do to, um, I suppose, create that feeling of safety or regulate to interrupt it, it, to shift, to shift it, to rewire how to yeah. stop. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're, they're really, this comes down to a couple of things. One of them has to do with developing daily practices that help people to engage and befriend their bodies again. And this is the other half of the model that I brought together. So one part of it is polyvagal theory and the other part of it is Jean Gendelin's work on focusing and working with the felt sense. And the felt sense is, is really the experience that we have in our bodies when we are living in that ventral grounded state and we feel integrated and connected to all of our experience. So the more that we practice things like a focusing practice, which brings you inside and begins to connect with noticing the, the, um, the neuroception, right? Steve's word, Porch's word for that part of the body that watches to keep us safe and shifts us autonomically into those states. So you're saying, you know, I'm not even aware of it. I'm just, boom, I'm into mobilization, right? But with awareness, when we build awareness and genuine appreciation for the body, when we come back into our bodies, because we don't live in our bodies in, our, in Western culture, we've forgotten we live in our bodies. So we're really in a bad state because all kinds of terrible things can happen when you don't connect to your body and to what we call the felt sense how your body carries meaning, how your body carries wisdom about what you need to do in your life to grow and to heal and to connect. Mm -hmm. So the more we develop these practices, mindfulness meditation, yoga practices, breath work, connecting into the ventral part of the vagus nerve, you know, through breath work, through chanting, through dancing, through all these rituals that a lot of been, that have been forgotten, um, and through uh, intentionally stopping and being quiet and pausing and allowing ourselves to go inside and notice two body processes. This is my model. The process of neuroception. Where am I in my nervous system right now? And What's my lived experience? How am I feeling about talking to you here and now? And what am I thinking as I'm feeling and being with you in my body? So this is the process of introception, felt sensing and mindfulness practice. And it's becoming more and more popular. You know, when I first started 40 years ago, 
I discovered focusing, but nobody talked about the felt sense. And now it's all over the place, except people often don't understand the fullness of what it means. You know, I, I trained, I was so fortunate to train with Gene Janlin, <clears throat> the father of the felt sense for, you know, like over 30 years. And we developed a whole community and we focus in partnerships. So that means that you would go down inside and you would share whatever feels comfortable and safe for you to share about what's happening in your body. And I would say it back to you. And we follow it along. We follow not just the physical sensations. That's what often people think the felt sense is. It's also the feeling that I have in this moment. It's the thoughts that I have right now. You know, here I am in a full felt sense with you. So I've got excited feelings and warm feelings and grounded feelings. So I'm in this place in my model that I call fired up. And it's a place that's grounded, but it's a blended state in the nervous system because there's also some sympathetic energy there because, you know, we're doing this thing and it's being filmed, you know? So there's that. And then there's a nice settled feeling in my body with a little bit of kind of effervescence, we would say, right? So the felt sense has this very right hemisphere embodied quality to it. And when you combine felt sensing, focusing with understanding the nervous system, you start to become much more informed about what's going on in my body right now. Oh, I'm revving right up and I'm acting like a crazy person. I'm running around doing this and this and this, but this isn't actually helping me. I need to go back to my daily practice and this is where I use, I made an actual graphic uh, model of the nervous system. And people loved it. They're downloading it on their phone and it's colorful and it's got shapes and whatever. And so I teach people how to orient there. You know, where are you in your nervous system right now? And then what's your felt sense? What's going on for you inside? And noticing how your body is giving you that feedback of, neuroception, the nervous system, and interoception, the felt sense of your lived experiencing. And then when you learn how to really pay attention to that and be quiet, there's this beautiful kind of what we call a felt shift that occurs, where there's a, ah, oh, yeah, I need to stop running around like a crazy person and a sitting down and a going, yeah, I got really activated by that conversation I just had with my boss. And then there's a, yeah, I don't need to respond like that. I've got time. I can feel my way through this and decide where I want to go with it. And that the body loves that, right? Especially if you share it with another person. When we bring compassion, to a place that's struggling to carry forward. Bodies love that. We just feel this, we feel better. There's actually a physical release in the body that occurs. And Gendlin saw this. He saw the release and people opened more. And he discovered it through actual a lot of research that he did. And 
what I began to realize was that felt shift that we talked about in focusing. Oh yeah, that feels better. I'm going to stop running around like a crazy person and you know, I'm going to go out for a walk, just settle myself a little bit, or I'm going to sit down and phone my focusing partner and share a little bit. And when that happens and that felt shift happens in the body, that's what I began to really appreciate as a shift in the autonomic nervous system from sympathetic back down to ventral. And then I was incredibly fortunate to um, have a very dear friend, Serge Prangle, uh, who is a focusing oriented therapist like I am. He's a friend of uh, Steve Porges. And he said, okay, I'm going to connect you up with Steve and you can talk about this. And that's when it happened. I had a, I met Steve at the um, United States Association of Body Psychotherapies conference in 2018. And I talked to him a little bit there and then we had a Skype and I said, I think that's what's going on, that the felt shift is the shift in the autonomic nervous system. He's like, yeah, sounds right to me. And I said, I think addictions are ways of shifting those states from numbing to flooding and back again. He's like, he says, yeah, I've always thought of addictions as state regulation strategies. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I figured it out, <laughs> at least for now, <laughs> you know, maybe more will come and it'll be proved wrong. But at least in this moment, something big began to make sense for me out of what was happening for these young women. And then I saw that, it, you know, it, people were figuring it out, like Judith Herman, when I reread her beautiful book, Trauma and Recovery, she actually talked about the autonomic nervous system and addictions. She talked about how people who've been seriously traumatized um, create these jolts to the body to bring relief when there is no safety. And those jolts were things like cutting and uh, eating huge quantities of food or vomiting food, these kinds of intense experiences, right? Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. There's so much there. Um, so I think I heard you say in another interview, Jan, that uh, one of the things that uh, Eugene Genlin would say was that the most important variable in whether psychotherapy works or not is how connected the client was to their body. And just hearing you speak now, you know, um, I think if we don't understand this, like we don't understand the nervous system and we don't have this felt sense, it's almost like being, it's almost like walking around blind, you know, and whenever you do understand this, it's like getting another sense and a sense that's going to help you feel safe and connected in the world, you know, so, so, so important. Um, so anyway, um, the next thing I want to ask you about is there's five kind of big theories that your model is built upon. Um, can you maybe just give us a, a quick overview of, of those five theories, just so people are kind of have a, a broad spectrum of yeah. understand the context here? Yeah, it's kind of how I developed my journey, you know, over the 40 years, we lots of us do this, right, you find one theory, and then you find another, and you kind of bridge them together and integrate them into your own working model. So the first one for me was, uh, was feminist therapists, uh, really uh, understanding 
the importance of, um, of systems of oppression. Um, I was lucky enough that my, my mom was a, quite a, a staunch feminist. And so I grew up with that, that uh, kind of framework. And then, you know, it was very much a part of the 1980s in trauma work. Uh, with these wonderful women that were, you know, as I've mentioned, and Judith Herman and Sandra Butler and, well, a whole, you know, so many women that were doing this work. So I started there and we had an appreciation of what was going on in the body with the language of numbing and flooding. And from there I found Jendlin's work uh, focusing because I realized, okay, this is all going on in the body and I am, I have no training, none, none in how to work with the body. This is ridiculous. So I found um, focusing through my my first uh, teacher, Mary Armstrong, who was here in Toronto, and uh, she worked closely with Jean Jandlin, and I was just really fortunate to have that experience. And then I met Jean, and it just happened over the years. So focusing oriented therapy is really my home base, where we bring in the felt sense, we bring in embodiment in how we work with with people. And then I went from there to um, interpersonal neurobiology, um, wonderful work, and also trauma, trauma therapy, uh, Bessel van der Kolk's work, all of the big trauma therapists that were around years ago that are still around uh, doing wonderful work, and uh, interpersonal neurobiology with Dan Siegel. Uh, so I think it was in 2012 where I went to a conference with... Um, Steve Porges, and learned about Bonnie Badenoch's work, and uh, Bessel van der Kolk may have been there. I went to see him many times as well, um, and Judith Herman. And then, then it, the, so the interpersonal neurobiology piece was another layer, so I kind of made these three different versions of the, of the, the graphic model. And in, with interpersonal neurobiology, Dan Siegel's work, he was talking about uh, chaos and rigidity as parts of the nervous system. And I loved his non-pathologizing approach. I love the way that uh, Siegel has these nine domains of integration, how we work with people to assess uh, their emotional regulation as, um, as ways of understanding trauma in a very non-pathologizing way. I never bought that uh, whole diagnostic and statistical manual way of, of, of seeing, seeing people. Um, an anti-oppressive lens is important to me. I think it's, it's the way to really more deeply appreciate who all of, uh, all of us are and how, how safe we feel or don't feel in the world. And. Um, so polyvagal theory then really fit for me uh, because it was this non-pathologizing way of understanding this is how bodies work. They work adaptively. They work to help us to survive. They're not pathologized ways. Addictions aren't pathology. They're strategies to help us survive when we don't feel we have enough safety to be really present in the world because Presence hurts. Hmm. Um, okay, so with the po the polyvagal theory thing, um, I think one of the 
one of the most important points is um, this whole idea. I think Deb Dana's phrase of story follows state. And the thing that you say I really like is that um, in between stimulus and response, there's an intervening variable. Variable, yeah. And that's the state. Could you maybe tell us about that as well and why that's... Yeah, that's huge. It's just hugely important. And I I love Deb's phrase. She's so good at having ways of really making it very simple, you know, story follows state. So... The intervening variable is is uh, Steve's uh, point um, in polyvagal theory, and it, it's what he's basically saying is that you know in the traditional um, kind of behavioral model that most of us have been trained in, there's a stimulus and there's a response, right? Something happens and then we respond to it. And what Steve Porges is saying, but we're missing the most important thing here which comes between something that happens that stimulates us and the response that we have. And so, for example, if I'm walking down the street and somebody bumps into me, right? The stimulus is the bumping, the being bumped into. If I feel grounded and, uh, you know, safe in a ventral kind of place, socially engaged with the world. The world's a pretty good place. This is a story I tell myself. The world's a pretty good place. People are pretty good. You know, they make mistakes. I might turn to you and say, oh, you know, Niall, you okay? Right? You know, are you all right? And you'd say, oh yeah, sorry, you know, and I'd carry on and that would be my response. So the story I would tell myself is, oh, Niall just tripped over something and he's fine and, and on I would go with my life. If I'm walking down the street and somebody bumps into me and in my intervening variable state of the autonomic nervous system, I'm in fight and you bump into me, I'm mad. What are you doing? Watch where you're going is my response, right? So the story I tell myself is you're a jerk and you did that to me on purpose. And I get, I get mobilized. I'm going to defend myself. I feel I, I need to protect myself, right? So the variable that's between the stimulus and the response is the autonomic nervous system state that you're currently in. It defines how we experience our life. And that's huge. It's just so important for therapists and all of us to understand because as we develop more wisdom about how our bodies work and as we honor and really appreciate the wisdom of the body, befriend our body and our nervous system, as Deb says, as we do that, then we really begin to understand and we can interrupt, as you were saying before, when you fly up into sympathetic and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on for me? I need to rewire this pathway because this is not working for me. It hasn't for 20 years and it's not still not working for me and I want to change it. So I breathe, I develop a practice of slowing down because I'm not afraid now to feel into my body. My body's my friend. And it's showing me something. So if I'm in a state of mobilization, 
I need to recognize that. What's going on for me? And then I can move into a kind of felt sensing about what's happening for me that I feel, you know, under threat right now. And maybe I can shift that into a place where I feel more comfortable and safe in me. Because, you know, we're all under threat right now in the world. The world is in a terrible state. But if you, if we can have moments where we feel safe enough to connect inside and to connect with each other, that's really the only hope I think we have. Um, 100%. It seems like, you know, being cut off from your body is sort of like being homesick. You know, that's your home. Like, that's everything, you know? That's beautiful, um, Niall. I love that. You should write that. Write that down. <laughs> That's really beautiful. It is like being homesick. And yet so many of us don't even know that. We, we've lost that. And in the states of addiction, we've really lost that awareness. So, yeah, it's just so important to be able to pause and breathe. And, you know, there are many ways to, to find that back inside. People that my son does it through playing the piano. People do it through prayer, through dance, through yoga practice, through focusing partnerships, through meditation, through writing, through through maybe you, you know, you do it through engaging with people and this other concept in polyvagal theory of co-regulation. So you like interviewing people, right? So do I. Why do we like that? Well, it's fun. It's interesting. And we get to co-regulate, which means that you know, if you're in a pretty sweet spot, my nervous system is going to start to pick up your warm, ventral, homey, cozy connection. And I'm going to start to feel better. That's just how we're wired, right? That's why connection is crucial because we are wired to connect in order to survive. We all need each other. 100%. Um so just going back to what we're talking about, the intervening variable, you know, we interviewed Steve last week for the summit as well. And yeah, he told me, I was asking him about, you know, what, what books had in, impacted him the most. And it was really interesting. One of the books he said was man's search for meaning and yeah. that, that had a big impact on him. And I suppose this comes back to what we're talking about here now, you know, that this gap between stimulus and response. And he was fascinated by how could some people in the camps, become you know like real it brought out the best of them and then some became like, like devils you know um, but the, i think our our terminology here sort of um it's almost misleading you know to call the autonomic nervous system autonomic because in my mind maybe i'm wrong but autonomic must be synonymous with automatic you know but yeah if we know that we can actively do things to change the state of our autonomic nervous system, maybe that's not the right word for it. Like, what do you, what do you think about that? I think that it, it is the right word in that it's the initial response. So the initial response is to go to the bodies wired in, in a very primitive way a very primitive way, the autonomic nervous system is not sophisticated. It's not a sophisticated part of the brain. It's a very primitive part of the brain. And it just goes, oh, are we safe or do we need to shift into mobilizing? And we don't think about that, right? It's the same as temperature. 
Like you don't think to yourself, oh, I'm getting sick. I better raise my temperature, <laughs> right? It just 100%. happens. 100%. So I think that it, I do think that it just happens. And then we can become very skilled with practice, with daily practice at noticing where am I? So where I am, I think is autonomic, but then noticing where am I is intentional. Where am I in my body and what's happening for me in my felt sense? So am I, my, my chest tightens because I think, oh God, what if I don't know the answer to a question Niall's going to ask me? And my chest tightens. I don't think to myself, oh, I better tighten my chest because I'm getting scared. It just happens. And then this is the, this is the beauty of our practices. Then we can, we can say, ah, whew, that just happened. And, and where am I? Oh, wow. I shifted from sympathetic right down into shutting down into dorsal. And now I can make a choice. I can rewire that pathway by doing something that brings me into a grounded place. So I'm here with you. I might get nervous. I go into sympathetic. I notice it right away because my heart rate goes up and I say to myself, ah, just extend those, those uh, uh, exhalation breaths like Steve taught you how to do. Just extend the exhalation breaths while you're talking to Nile, and your vagus nerve will come back online and you'll settle down again into ventral. So that's an example of a neural exercise. I think that that's actually really worth touching on. So um, I play, when I was in Ireland, I played a competitive sport called Gaelic football and the training would always be quite late at night. And you would come back and you'd be sprinting, you'd, you'd be sprinting the training. So your heart rate is like really, you know, and you can't sleep after that. Yeah. Then whenever I discovered polyvagal theory and this idea that if you extend your exhales longer than your inhales, it really calms the nervous system down. So do you think, you know, if someone's feeling nervous or anxious, that that is a good strategy for just. Yes. If you're in the sympathetic state, that's an excellent strategy for calming down. Then you can also combine it with a focusing practice. So if I taught you how to focus and to go in and find the felt sense in your body of home, mm. this is what we do within my work. So we find what does home, if home is safe, if home is safe. So, or where is, where is a place where you feel okay in your body? And it might be, might be the trees blowing in the wind. It might be your grandmother's kitchen right? It's, it's very much where the body takes you, where you feel safe enough or grounded enough to uh, slow things down and pay attention to a good feeling inside, or it might be a good energy place, some place where you're having fun. And then we really work on uh, getting a handle for that place in a focusing process. So that's like um, a word or an image. Often it's like in an image or a color, something that from your focusing embodied practice helps you to get back there again. So it becomes a resource. So for me, I have my, one of mine is, um, it's a dream I had about being, you'll relate to this, in a double-decker bus in London. Okay. And I'm up on the top of the double-decker bus and I can see everything. And it's this amazing feeling 
So that's kind of the image and the word that comes with it is expansive. And if I feel sympathetic rush of flight or fight, or I don't, I'm not a person who often goes into a dorsal place, but you can use this there too, wherever you are in a dysregulated kind of state, you can actively bring in your practices that are resources through uh, saying the handle to yourself or feeling into it in your body. Where's that expansive? And sometimes it feels like it's miles away, but you can touch the edge of it in your body. And then you start to cultivate it and build it through your practice of being inside. And then over time, you just become more and more effective at shifting states, noticing where you are in your body, bringing yourself back to ventral, calming the heart down, you know. The other thing that's helpful is if it is like that kind of a situation is to connect with another person and and uh, share something that feels really warm and nice with them. That also will really, through co-regulation, the social engagement system, bring you back into a ventral state. So we, we just have all these different ways and working with triggers is another one that's a huge thing uh, that is important to really develop a way of working with through the nervous system as well, right? Because we don't control what we get triggered by. We can only deal with how we manage that trigger. 100%, um, 100%. So in your paper that you wrote, John, um, one of the things I find particularly interesting was this idea that in this, in this work, you know, therapists are, I'm not sure if I'm getting the phrase right, but therapists are essentially instruments in the work, you know, and whenever you are aware of this, um, you realize that your, 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 the state of your nervous system is having an effect on everybody around you. So there's great responsibility here as well. And, you know, we met for dinner last week and, at least in that during that meeting, you know, I could tell that you really live by this work and you try and embody what you're teaching here, which I really respect because I think there are a lot of people that teach things that don't, that they don't embody, you know? So could you maybe tell us about the importance of, I suppose, therapists understanding, understanding that. Um, and also if you have time as well, just about, how whenever clients understand understand this concept it can lead to what you call moments of liberation as well mm. yeah sure so i wrote i wrote quite a bit about that in my book as well because i think i really believe that that is very true that therapists we are our own instruments this is it right and when you work in an embodied way you realize that wow this is it how I show up with you is the work. And I learned so much from Gene Genlin about how we don't have to be perfect. You know, he talked, he had this beautiful practice that he does called the primacy of human presence. And I actually put it in my book because I think it's a practice of being really present as much as possible. But, you know, we're all what he calls shaky beings. And, you know, I might be having a rough day and I don't um, pretend otherwise, 
But I have learned through practice, through step one in focusing called clearing space, which is like a meditation practice, how to take all of that about whatever is rough, whatever is coming between me and being fully with you, Niall. So I don't have to be 100%. But I do need to appreciate the power of presence, my presence with my client. So I take whatever all of that is, the whole experience, the whole felt sense of it, and I practice putting it beside me. And then I practice putting beside me all the stuff I know, all the theories, the books, all of that, all the ways that we're taught to interpret what's going on with the person in front of us. And I put that over beside me too. Because too often it's in between me or it's in between a therapist and their client, not me, because I don't do that anymore. Um, and it gets in the way. You, you know, you filter everything the client says through this theory or that theory or that theory or you, you, you know, end up pathologizing people and giving them diagnoses and labels. And, you know, some of that can be helpful. It's all wonderful. I love it. I love concepts. I mean, I wrote a book. I love that stuff. But Jenlin says, put it beside you. Have the courage to put it beside you. And then have the courage to just show up as a human being with another human being. That's the primacy of my presence. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be mindful, thoughtful, and present to, to be able to hold another person's experiencing. And that's something that, you know, you learn over time as a therapist, right? How to hold these, what I called hot potatoes, these horrible experiences that people have and nobody wants them. And clients don't want to give them to you because they don't want to hurt you. But they have to come out. They have to ah, be let go of by the body. So, you know, it's like here it is and it's this hot potato and we have to find a way to be able to make a space to clear it so that we can come back into our bodies as therapists and co-regulate in a way that helps people feel invited to come forward with cues of safety. Big time, big time. Um, so we've done have that long left, Jan. Um, I want to, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about the six F's of the model. Um, I think that'd be really cool if we could, if we could cover that before, before we end. Sure. Yeah. So people can find the, the model on my website, janwinhall.com. You can download it with a whole bunch of other things. The model is a circle for me when I went inside and focused, um, the nervous system came to me as a circle. And at the bottom of the circle is, uh, is what we called, um, for the ventral part of the vagus, the grounded state in the body, we called it flock. Um, I made this with uh, my group of uh, uh, focusing trainers at uh, Focusing on Borden's, a community that I started to train people and teach people. And um, so we called that place of coming together and social engagement and um, connection in the ventral vagus flock because that's what we do right we flock together and then the other two branches of the nervous system so flight fight was already two f's so we thought well we'll make it six f's and we'll make it simple 
for people to remember. So we've got, we've got flock at the bottom, we've got flight fight uh, over here, and then um, down on the other side, um, uh, uh, on the other end of flight fight, we, we called the dorsal branch of the vagus fold because it literally is a folding in of the body, folding in and shutting down of the body. And then we talked about three other blended states. So these are states in the nervous system that combine um, different branches. So uh, one that I touched on is uh, fired up or fun, and that's a blending of grounding, ventral flock, and flight fight. Right? So, and you can see it in fun, for example, when kids are playing in the schoolyard and uh, they're laughing and playing and they're mobilized and they're having fun. That's, that's a fun place. They feel safe and they're mobilizing, they're running around. But as soon as somebody feels unsafe, they get hurt, it shifts quickly up into either fight where they're in a fist fight with each other or flight where they're crying and running home, right? That's a blended state. Um, and uh, on the other side is, is what we called flow. And that's a blending of this wonderful grounded ventral place and, and, and uh, folding in of immobilization. So the place that Steve Porges calls stillness, where we feel safe to be still. And here's where we, we have uh, lovemaking, breastfeeding, meditation often is in stillness, lots of different practices. Um, where the body feels like it's okay to hold still. Nobody's going to attack me. And then the third blended state is what we call fixate, and that's the addiction state. And that's where we're shifting back and forth between flight fight and folding in and shutting down. And I remember asking, what are we going to call that? What's an F? word for for that uh, shifting back and forth in the in addiction and uh, remember you know uh, somebody saying oh fixate perfect because you know in that state of addiction you're fixated to whatever it is that you're addicted to your your point of focus becomes so narrow that the only thing that you yeah. think is going to help you feel safe is that that thing. Um, yeah, literally your neural pathways are wired to that, right? They're wired to pursue that little hit of dopamine. When I was, I was out for a walk earlier and I was just thinking about um, this and you could make an argument that, and this, this might be very reductionist to say, but you could make an argument that almost every human behavior, the underlying motivation is safety you know, even if someone is trying to be really successful or whatever, like say they're, I don't know, that they're trying to make a billion or whatever, they're trying to make a billion, billion dollars. Um, that might be coming from a very young, young part of themselves that thinks that to, to be safe, I need to get the recognition of my parents and I need to, to do that. I need to be really achieve really high things, or whatever. So underneath that drive is this drive for safety. Do, do you, would you agree with that? Like it seems. Yeah, yes. And actually this is, this is something Steve Porges says that we are all in, in, in our own way that life is about, it's this quest for safety, searching for safety. And that, you know, we can look at these different behaviors as strategies for trying to achieve that. 
and they become, um, so in that sense, our behaviors are adaptive in that context. You have to look at the context of the behavior to understand what's motivating it. And that's the beauty of, you know, befriending the body. And that's story follows state. So, or maybe somebody was starving when they were a kid. So their way to for, for survival is through accumulating money. And maybe they do things that are not uh, very um, uh, friendly towards people, but it for them, in their nervous system, it's about survival. So the more we understand life through that lens, the more sense it makes. And the more we understand and appreciate that so many of our behaviors are, are adaptive within the context that they occur, including addiction. hundred percent, hundred percent. So I think it's, there's so many benefits of this perspective, but it, it can help you value the right things. And instead of yeah. taking these maladaptive routes that are very indirect, you can just go directly to what you might really be after, you know? Um, so just before we wrap up, John, uh, two questions. So I know we've already, um, I've already asked this by email, um, but three books you'd recommend that every therapist should read. And yeah, if you answer that, and then I'll ask you about your own, your own book and where people can get that online as well. Well, I would say Jean's little book, Jean Gendlin's little book, uh, Focusing or Focusing Oriented Therapy that he wrote. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I also th still think that Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, is as good today as it ever was. It's just uh, such um, an incredible contribution to the field. It's also just beautifully written. And the other one would be um, maybe The Pocket Guide to Polyvagal Theory. It's kind of a... It's an enjoyable introduction to a theory that um, can get really complicated, but doesn't, doesn't have to. We can learn over time how to break it down into simple kind of lessons. 100%. And your own book. So you've got two, you're working on two books at the moment, um, but you've also published one last year as well. So can you tell us about, about those? Well, the book I published last year is called Treating Trauma and Addiction with the Felt Sense Polyvagal Model. So it's really my journey that we've we've talked about here, but I go into it in depth in each of the chapters to talk about each of the different uh, theories that I did, that I brought um, into the model. And then also I developed um, an embodied assessment and treatment tool. So a way of using introception, the felt sense, and neuroception, polyvagal theory, uh, to assess clients in terms of their um, embodied functioning. Because really, when I looked around, there was really nothing that that brought those things to together that I could find. So um, it's a very it's a very rich uh, way of assessing clients. You actually download it through Excel. Um, it's available on my website, and I teach it. And um, um, it's a lot of fun actually to use and it really helps us to build rigor into what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing and to help our clients to document their journey so that we share that and we take that with there's nothing secret about what we're doing you know we teach that to people so they understand themselves better and um, then the two new uh, workbooks I'm working on I'm just at the very beginning of this of negotiating 
um, a workbook for for my book, Treating Trauma and Addiction, so that therapists um, can use it in conjunction with my book in uh, in their therapy, and then a self help book, so clients can also use this model as a way of making sense, right? Making meaning and making sense out of our own experiencing. Awesome, awesome. And you've also got a course with the Polyvagal Institute. I don't know if that I do. that will be. A- can you tell us about that as well? Yeah, I'm so I'm so excited about that. The first, it's a six month course um, with a lot of um, pre recorded material of me um, talking about the development of my book and the different chapters and the assessment tool. And then uh, one Saturday a month, so we start November the fifth um, for two hours. We meet live, which I can hardly wait for, and everybody gets a focusing partner. So you come out of this six months with a new community of uh, people that are into felt sensing and polyvagal approaches to not only trauma and addiction, but we also have some people in there that do um, Pilates work or people that work in organizations who want to bring uh, a more embodied way of approaching and working with people. And um, yeah, so that starts November the 5th and we've got about, I think between 45 and 50 people in the group and I'm excited about that. People will end up with a certificate from the Polyvagal Institute in treating trauma and addiction, and also through the Focusing Institute in focusing proficiency, which is the first step towards um, becoming a focusing teacher. Awesome, awesome. And your website is janwinhall.com, is that right? janwinhall.com, yeah. I also run an addiction group and a focusing-oriented therapy group for women. So, yes, I have to, like get busy over the winter <laughs> start writing those workbooks <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say yeah you, you seem like a very um lazy person john you're not really <laughs> yeah. um uh, but yeah just before you wrap up i just want to say you know this epiphany you had whenever you were talking to steve Porges um those years all those years ago like i think this um this is going to make big ripples and waves in the therapeutic community. I think this is, this is really going to make a difference. So it's fantastic what you're doing. I want to commend you on it and just wish you the best of luck with getting your message out there. And I'm glad we were able to connect and have this conversation. Thank you so much, Niall. It was fun.